Chapter Eight of That Mother-in-Law of Mine by Anonymous. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Carolyn. Chapter Eight. Another Charlie in the Field. The winter, with its pity trials and contentions, had gone by. Spring, with its bloom and fragrance, was far advanced, and already another summer, with its possible pleasures and recreations, was close upon us. Before it had fairly set in, however, an event of extraordinary importance was to occur in our little household. There had been premonitions of it for some time, which had a tendency to soften and soothe all aspirites, and cause a rather sober and subdued air to pervade the little cottage. And now there were active preparations going on. Of course, the widow was gradually assuming the management of the whole affair, and it was a matter in which I could hardly venture to dispute her right. Her experience and knowledge were certainly superior to mine, and it was an affair in which these qualities were very important. In fact, I seemed to be counted out altogether in the preparations, as if it was something in the nature of a surprise party in my honor. Mrs. Pinkerton had an air of mysterious and exclusive knowledge concerning the grand event. Miss Van, who had come to have confidential relations with Bessie, of the most intimate kind, notwithstanding the mother's objections, knew all about it, but had a queer way of appearing unconscious of anything unusual. There seemed to be a general consent to a shallow pretense that I was in utter and hopeless ignorance. It annoyed me a little, as I flattered myself that I knew quite as much about what was coming as any of them, and I thought it silly to make believe I didn't, and to ignore my interest in the affair. Bessie had no secrets from me, of course, and our understanding was complete, but one might have thought from appearances that we had less concern in the matter than anybody else. As the auspicious time drew nearer, the goings-on increased in mystery, and the widow's control grew more and more complete. Bessie showed me one day a wardrobe that amused me immensely. It was quite astonishing in its extent and variety, but so Lilliputian in the dimensions of the separate garments as to seem ridiculous to me. "'Aren't they cunning?' said the dear girl, holding up one after another of the various articles of raiment. Then she showed me a basket, marvellously constructed, with a mere skeleton of wicker work and coverings of pink silk and fine lace, and furnished with toilet appliances that seemed to belong to a fairy, and finally, removing a big kilt that had excited my curiosity, she showed me the most startling object of all, a cradle. I had seen such things before, and felt no particular thrill, but this had a strange effect upon me. I didn't stop to inquire how these things had all been smuggled into the house without my knowledge or consent, but kissed my little wife fondly, and went downstairs in a musing and pensive mood. The next day a decree of virtual exile was pronounced upon me. My mother-in-law thought perhaps it would be better if I would occupy another room in the house for a time, and let her share Bessie's chamber. The poor dear girl might need her care at any time, and the widow looked at me as much as to say, "'You cannot be expected to know anything about these matters, and have nothing to do but to obey my directions.' I consented without a murmur, or the least show of resistance, for I admitted everything that could possibly be said, and lost all my spirit of independence, in view of the impressive event that was coming. So I meekly took to the attic, and put up with the most forlorn and desolate quarters. One or two mornings after, I was aroused at an inhuman hour, 
and ordered in the most imperative tones to call in Dr. Lemon as quickly as possible, and haste after Mrs. Sweet. I hurried into my clothes in the utmost agitation, raced down the street in a manner that led a watchful policeman to stop me and inquire my business, rung up the doctor with the most unbecoming violence, and delivered my errand to a speaking-tube, in answer to his muffled, "'What's wanted?' Then I rushed to the neighboring stable, and got up the sleepy hostler, with as much vehemence in my manner as if he were in danger of being burnt to death, and induced him to harness a team, in what I considered about twice the necessary length of time, drove three miles in the morning twilight to Mrs. Sweet, a motherly old maid in the nursing business, who had officiated at Bessie's own debut upon the stage of life. When I had got back and returned the team to the stable, and was walking about in the lower rooms in a restless manner, feeling as if I had suddenly become a hopeless outcast, the doctor came downstairs, and said, with amazing calmness, as though it was the most commonplace thing in the world, "'Getting on nicely. Fine boy, sir. Mrs. Travis is quite comfortable. We'll look in again in the course of the morning.' Then I was left alone again, an outcast and a wanderer in my own home. All the life was upstairs, including the wee bit of new life that had come to venture upon the perils and vicissitudes of the great world. It was two hours, but it seemed a month, before anyone relieved my solitude, and then it was at Bessie's interposition, in fact, a command that she had to insist upon until her mother was afraid of getting her excited, that I was admitted to behold the mysteries above. Well, it is nobody's business about the particulars of that chamber. It was too sacred for description. But there was the tiny, quivering, red newcomer, already dressed in some of the dainty Lilliputian garments, and very much astonished, and not altogether pleased at the effect. Bessie was proud and happy. The nurse, moving about silently, knew just what to do and how to do it, and the mother-in-law held supreme command. She was grand and severe, and evidently her wishes had been disregarded in respect to the sex of her grandchild. She feared the consequences of another Charlie launched into a world already too degenerate, and she had hoped for an addition to the superior sex. But Bessie and I were mightily pleased that it was a boy. There was little to be said then, but in a few days the restraint began to be relaxed, and discussions arose about what had become the most important member of the household. Even the widow must be content with having the second place now. But I began to have misgivings, lest my position had been permanently fixed as the third. In my secret mind, however, I determined to assert my rights as soon as Bessie was strong again, and reduce my mother-in-law to the position in which she belonged. I had put off doing it too long, and advantage might be taken of the present juncture of affairs to strengthen her claim of supremacy, and it really wouldn't do to delay much longer. "'I think he looks just like Charlie,' said Bessie to Miss Van, the first time the latter called after the great event. "'Well, I don't know,' was the reply. "'It seems to me he has his papa's dark eyes, but I can see any other resemblance.' "'Oh, I do,' Bessie replied with spirit. "'Why, it is just his forehead and mouth.' and his hair will be just the same beautiful brown when he grows up. The old lady was looking on reproachfully, and finally said, Bessie, my dear, that child looks precisely like your own family. George at his age was just such an infant. You couldn't tell them apart. George entered the room at that moment, and with his boisterous laugh said, You don't mean to say that I was ever such a little soft ridiculous lump of humanity as that, do you? As like as two peas was the reply of his mother. 
For my part I kept out of the discussion, for I must confess I could see no resemblance between the precious baby and any other mortal creature, except another baby of the same age. I thought they looked pretty much all alike, and was not prepared to deny that it was the exact counterpart of anybody at that particular stage of development. "'I tell you what, Bess,' said George, after the debate had fully subsided, "'you must name that little chap for me.' "'Oh, no,' replied the proud mother. "'That is all settled.' His name is Charlie. Nothing had been said on the subject before, and I was a little startled at Bessie's positive manner, for I thought even this matter would not be free from her mother's dictation. The old lady seemed surprised and vexed. George is a much better name, I think, she said very quietly, keeping down her vexation. But I thought perhaps you might remember your dear father in this matter. His name, you know, was Benjamin. Yes, I know, said Bessie, very firmly but I think there is one with a still higher claim, and the child's name is Charles. Good for you, little girl, I thought, but I said nothing. Within me I felt a gleeful satisfaction at Bessie's spirit, which showed that, if it ever came to a sharp contest with her mother, nothing could keep her from holding her own place by her husband's side. All my misgivings about her possible estrangement by her mother's influence vanished, and I saw that the new tie between us would be stronger than any earthly power. "'Well,' said George abruptly, after a pause, "'I wouldn't be so disobliging about a little thing like that.' "'Ah, uh, you wait until you can afford the opportunity of furnishing names, and see what you will do,' I said jokingly. My joke was not generally appreciated. The widow gave me a look a little short of savage. Bessie suppressed a smile in order to give me a reproof with her eyes— and Miss Van just then thought of something wholly irrelevant to say, as if she had not noticed my remark at all. On the whole, I was made to feel that it was a disgraceful failure. End of chapter 8